Good morning, church. If you guys have, um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. Let's go with Romans this morning. And um, we're going to be in uh, the second half of chapter four of Romans this morning as we continue hearing about and learning about Abraham and talking about what it means to have faith. So I'm going to put um, put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but we're going to be reading uh, Romans chapter 14, or chapter 4, we are not that far, 4 verses 13 through 25. We're going to pick up pretty much where we left off last week, jump ahead just a little bit. This is Paul talking again about what it means to have faith, um, what faith, justification by faith looks like, and he's using the example of Abraham, a forefather, if ever there was one, of the Jewish people and of their faith, a person they looked up to, the person they wanted to be like, a person they wanted to model in the way that they lived. So he said, I'm going to use him as an example as I explain to you all what it looks like to actually be a righteous person and where that comes from. And we talked a little bit about it last week, and we're going to talk more about it this week. So here we go. Uh, Romans 4, 13 through 25 says this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Uh, Sorry if you're a hundred. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, uh, we've been talking about faith, which is just about the most abstract, ambiguous, and vague word that you could throw out there on a Sunday morning at a church. Let's talk about faith, how to have faith, how to be people of faith, what it means to actually be a person whose salvation is in faith and not in these things called works of righteousness. It's just so, uh, so big of a concept, one that we throw around so much that it's hard for us to even stop and think, what do we define it as? 
And this morning, what we're seeing with Abraham, what Paul's doing for us is he is giving us such an incredibly tangible example of what it looks like for a person to have faith. Now, we said last week that that faith is what justifies Abraham, and we read here that this is a very good thing for us because if what justified Abraham was his, his works, the good things that he did, the way that he lived his life, filled with discipline and perfection and being an upstanding person, then bad news, everybody, we aren't that good, which means it would stop there. But fortunately, Abraham's righteousness was found in the fact that he had this thing called faith, and because he did, all of his heirs, all of those who would even come after him to be an heir of Abraham, to be a person who shared in the promises that God gave him, simply required that you be a person who also has this same thing that they're talking about, that Paul's talking about, called faith. So in order to have what he had, to get the benefit of what he got, you simply have to have this thing called faith. What is faith? Okay. And what we see here. And it is so, so helpful for us is we see Paul explaining that what faith is, is this. It is a person living their life according to something called a promise. So to be a person of faith, to have faith versus something else means to be aware of a promise that's been made to you by God, a thing that he says is true, and trusting in that thing to such a degree that, that your life will, with, without a doubt, be fundamentally different from the lives of the people around you. Why? Because they do not trust in that thing. They do not hope in that thing. They do not put their security in that thing. To be a person of faith is to be a person whose life is totally directed by, dictated by, found in all kinds of ways, wrapped up in promises that God makes. We are a people, if we're a people of faith, who are a people of a promise, the promises that God makes to us. And this is what we see here. And that's what we're talking about this morning is what it actually looks like to be a person of faith uh, is ultimately being a person whose life is dictated by promises that God makes. And what is our relationship to those promises? How do we live in such a way that those promises affect everything about our lives to where the life of a person with faith would look fundamentally different from the life of a person without faith in these things that God promises? Uh, we read in the beginning of uh, Abraham's story in the Bible, it's in Genesis 12, we read this, now the Lord said to Abram, his name used to be Abram, and uh, we, we read this, it comes after the Tower of Babel, um, and, and we read this account of this man that we haven't heard before, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So God comes to this man, Abram, and uh, up until now, Abraham does not have a, a really a relationship with God. He hasn't heard from God, um, and it's kind of incredible that he would even hear God's voice considering where he's grown up, the culture that he's living in, the people that he's amongst, his family, of his, history, all those things. Now, what's really interesting about this is uh, it comes right after the Tower of Babel um, where we read uh, that the people... Uh, built this great big tower. They worked together really hard. They found all this great unity and, and productivity, and they, they came together to make a name for themselves. And then God's like, nope, and he ends that. 
Then we read this, that God comes to Abraham. And what is it that God wants to do through Abraham? What is it that he wants? He wants to make a name for himself. He says to Abraham, Abram, I'm going to make a name for myself. You guys aren't going to make a name for yourselves. I'm going to make a name for myself, and I'm going to do it in the following way. I'm going to work through you, Abram. So this is God's like direct response to everybody at our best shot going, no, 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 God, we're going to figure out how to make our way up to you. We're going to figure out how to be the right kind of people. We're going to figure out how to combine all these great skills and gifts and resources that you've given us on this planet. And we're going to build a way to get to you without your help. You're going to be impressed and we will have uh, made a name for ourselves. Well, God never created us to make names for ourselves. He's not interested in little people that make names for themselves. He wants his name to be the greatest name. It is the greatest name. So God comes to Abram. His, his, his desire uh, is to make his own name great. And how's he going to do that? By making Abram's name great. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your name great because people will see something in you and your story, your family, your, 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 uh, the people that come after your descendants. And that's going to make people, by they seeing how great you are, see how great I am. So God makes these promises to him. Now, in the Hebrew, there isn't actually a word for what we consider to be a promise. It's a lot simpler. You either just say something or you don't. So really, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, God just said these things. He didn't say, Abraham, I promise you, I mean it this time, right? Because if you have a friend and they have to make promises all the time, what does that mean about that friend of yours? It means you can't trust them, right? Uh, if people are making promises, you're like, yeah, yeah, we all know why you're promising. No, 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 but really this time, I mean it, right? I promise. And we hear that word promise associated with God in the Bible, and it often makes us think less of God, it makes us think, why does he have to promise? Why does he have to prove anything to people? If, if he was someone that can be trusted, why would he have to promise things? Well, in the Hebrew, there really isn't that concept. It really is as simple as Jesus outlines it when he talks to people about their yes, BS, and their no, be no. God just comes to Abram, and he says, here is how it's going to be. He just tells him. And what he says is he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's the first like, promise that he gives him. It's the first thing that God just says, this is what's going to happen. I will bless you and I will bless through you. I will curse those who curse you. To your offspring, I will give this land. Now, what we also see is a lot of times a promise is paired with a command. So there are times that we have these covenants in the Bible, and those are built on this idea of if the people do this, God will do this, right? If the people are obedient, God will give them a land. If the people are obedient, God will protect them from their enemies. There's, a, there's circumstances. There's, there's the idea of uh, they do their part, God does his part, and if they don't do their part, he won't do his part. But most of the promises that we read about in the Bible, most of what God says he will do, he's detaching from any requirement and saying, this is just what I'm going to do regardless of how perfect or imperfect, obedient or disobedient that the people end up being or that you end up being. So he's telling Abraham, I'm going to do these things. This is an absolute thing. This isn't conditional. It's going to happen regardless of how good Abraham is at living out this faith. And his promise to Abraham comes with a command. And much of the time that God says things about himself to people in Scripture, he's saying those things about himself to remind the people of why they should do the thing he's telling them to do. So he's saying to Abraham, I want you to go. And I promise these things to you so that you know that as you go, that there is something that I am doing here that is bigger than all the other stuff that you're going to see swimming around you. The Bible is filled with 
the promises of God. Scripture is filled with things that, that God, that Jesus say in a very matter-of-fact way oftentimes. And we, uh, we get those things, we read those things, and, and they are things that are true. And what we read about in, in the very beginning, when man and woman sinned against God, their sin came from their lack of belief in what God said was true about himself. Because they, didn't, they just didn't believe what God said was true about himself, about the world, about them, they began to sin. And so God tells us these things. Jesus tells us these things about himself. We read about them in the Bible. The question is not, have we all done enough Bible studies to know what they are much of the time? You don't need me to buy you a book of promises and give it to you for you to be like, oh, are you kidding me? I had no idea. Most of these promises we know. We take them for granted. The question is not usually, are we aware of the promises of God, us sitting here in this room today? The question is, do we actually believe them Do we trust in them apart from other things? Is our confidence or our life built on those things? God tells us in his word, he says, I will be in control. I'm in control. You can trust me. I've got it covered. I will clothe you. I will provide for you. You need not worry about things, about what you will eat and what you will wear and where you will go. I will provide things for you because I'm your father. I will be gracious towards you. You don't have to live much in life with any amount of self-awareness before you realize I'm not going to earn much on my own. And when it comes to things with God, that's no different. So he says again and again in scripture, uh, I will be gracious towards you. I will. You will have life in me. You are on good standing with me, uh, not because of what you've done, but for other things that I've done. And so I, I promise you that that is a possible thing. Even though it sounds too good to be true, even though it maybe doesn't mesh with what you see in the world around you, each and every time you spend any time with any person, It is true, God says, I am a gracious God, and I will be gracious toward you, even if you don't think that you deserve it, because you don't. He says, I will empower you with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, my spirit, and you're going to do things um, that you would not be able to do without the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit will also uh, empower the church to do things. It will also cause things to happen. It will, it will give you a way to be connected to me personally in a way that you couldn't be before. So no matter how disconnected you might feel for me, no matter how the circumstances of life are going, know that I have given you my spirit. And it's one of the times that we read that word promise in the New Testament is when Jesus says promises the Holy Spirit because they are freaking out. He's like, I'm leaving. They're like, are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding me? You're leaving, I promise you, I promise you, one is coming who is even going to help you do greater things than I've helped you do. The Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit will be with you and is with us. He tells us that the gates of hell will not rise up against and defeat the church that he is putting together. He is calling us to be a church and he says, the gates of hell will not rise up against you. You, uh, the church will win in the end because I will win, and I will cause the church to have victory. He says to us, I will be your defense. You need no other defense in this life except for me. You don't need to defend yourself to other people. You don't need to worry so much about how you look to everyone and the misunderstandings that happen, the things that are going on in life, the people that you can't figure things out with. I will be your defense. 
He tells that to his people in the Old Testament. He tells that to his, his, you see the way the apostles live out their lives of faith. You see that they are living as people who don't feel the need to defend themselves, even when the stones are beginning to be thrown at them. Why? Because God says, I'm going to be your defense. And believe me, if I'm going to get you out of this thing, I'm going to get you out of it, regardless of how much you try to catch all those stones they're throwing at you. I will be your shield. I will be your fortress. I will protect you. This is just a sampling of the things that God tells us, that Jesus tells us are true of himself. And to be a person of faith, just like Abraham, is to say, do I believe and trust in this thing that God has told me is true no matter what happens? To spend our lives, our lives built on these promises is to be people of faith and trust in those things. So much happens to Abram. He, uh, he makes good choices. He makes bad choices. He, uh, he does leave. Uh, his territories are expanded. God shows him where the promised land is. He goes to Egypt, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But after he has some, some wins and he has some major losses, God ultimately comes to him again in Genesis 15. And before I read that, I have it here. I don't, I don't know if I have it on a slide. But there's three things that we're basically talking about with this thing of being a people of faith. And it is this. If we are to be people, if we are people, if you are someone who trusts in the promise that God gives, then it will offer you things. It will do things. It will, it will, it will give you things that nothing else can give you. And there's three things that we focus on that Paul pulls out that we see in Abraham's life. Three things that are true in Abraham's life because he built his life on the promise that God gave and not on anything else, okay? And they're all very real things. The first is this, is that God, through his promise, first and foremost, gives his people direction, okay? He says, go that way. Now, much of the time, he doesn't even show, tell them the, the destination specifically they're heading to, which is really frustrating. He's like, just keep going that way. God tells Abraham, go. He sends them out, And he says, my promise will be the thing that will give you a direction and help you know where to go. Now, when life is easy and when it's good, or I don't know, maybe when you're in college or something and someone else is deciding your schedule and where you live and the meals that you eat, maybe it doesn't feel quite so much like you need direction. But the moment that things start to get a little hairy in life, the moment that you start really adulting in life, you start to realize just how important direction is. To be a person of faith is to be a person whose direction in life is dictated by the promise that God makes. Your direction that you are heading in life is not dictated by all of the other things that are begging you to aim for them, to decide based on them. And that direction is real direction, meaning that when all of the other confusing voices, distractions, fears... Uh, complications rise up in life around us, this direction is real enough that we do not have to choose those things. We don't have to listen to those things. It's kind of like a, like a river that winds back and forth, and the person with real direction is going to do less winding 
than a person without it. They're going to be pulled around every single curve, pulled by every single current, constantly wondering, do I get out here? Do I stop here? Do I get out here? And the person with the direction of God's promise, like Abraham, knows that they must continue to go. This is why God's promises are often uh, put together with commands in Scripture, right? Go, and I promise you this, right? Focus on my promise. You know where I want you to go. I get it. It doesn't totally make sense, but I will take care of you. And so to do, to live life the way Abraham did, Abram was a wealthy man. He had so much before God even began to speak to him. And yet God still wanted to give a direction to his life, and he does the same thing for us. Every one of these things that Jesus tells us is meant to give us that direction, know where to go, to be a people of faith who are driven by that and nothing else. Um, Eventually, yeah, I don't think I have it up here. Yeah, I don't. Um, So eventually in Romans 15, um, after uh, Abram uh, has some highs and some lows, God comes to him again years later, and Abram is lamenting, and he's saying, God, like, uh, you're telling me that I'm going to have this great nation behind me. You're telling me that you're going to bless me through my family. I don't, I'm old. I can't have kids anymore. I don't know if you get this, God, but like it's not happening for me and Sarah. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to have a child um, of my own with my wife because she can't give birth. And, and God says to him, he says, no, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a child, an heir from from you, not some other way, not that your wife's servant, not any other way. And he calls him to go out and he calls him to look up at the stars and he says, as many as stars you see in the sky will be your children, will be your descendants, will be the nation that I create for you. Now, um, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what's motivating Abram and Abraham because God then changes his name in Genesis 15, right after right he tells him this. He says, I'm giving you a new name, and this is a new name that I'm giving you because you're a different person now. You're a person according to my promise. And, and you've had enough time to now figure out exactly what it's going to look like to live this promise out, how sketchy it's going to be at times, but how confident you can be in me. And it's kind of hard to know why Abram does the things that he does. As we read the account of his life, some of the choices that he makes, uh, it's hard to know why he does these things. Does he do them because he's afraid? Does he do them because he's simply trying as hard as he can to actually follow God's promise the best way he can? Sometimes he blows it and other times he doesn't. We don't totally know, but what we know is that the life of a person uh, following this direction is not necessarily a simple life, right? It's not a one-dimensional life. Uh, it's not easier in that way. There, it's, it gets complicated. It gets messy. But ultimately, the direction is always going to be there. We, we read further on, as Paul is talking about exactly uh, how this looked in Abraham's life. What it was like for him, in all practical sense, to be given a promise of God, and then to be like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this thing? We read this. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So God tells Abram, uh, you're going to have a a child, you're going to have a family. And Abram's like, but I can't have a family. We can't have kids. 
And so what it means to follow this promise uh, is to have something that gives you the ability to hope in a way that you couldn't hope before. And the way that Paul describes it here is he hopes against hope. What the heck does that mean? It means there was the thing that he hoped in before. And then when God made a promise and called him to something else, he had this comparison going on. These two things bumped into each other. And he goes, well, what I hoped in before was what my body could physically do. What I hoped in before was uh, the way that things made logical sense in my mind. Uh, Basically, what I hoped in before was life without God. Here's all the ways that things are supposed to work out for life if God isn't a factor. And we're actually remarkably good at planning out our lives as if God isn't a factor. So we have the thing that we hope, and it's like, listen, this is just kind of like the the secular plan. It's okay. I know there's going to be other stuff too. There's going to be a God component. I'll do a quiet time every morning like you said to do last week, but I got to make some plans. I got to have a plan, and I've got to build it around something a little bit more predictable than, than the promises of God. That's a little unpredictable for me. So you have all the things that you hope in that kind of make logical sense to hope in. You go, listen, this is what I'm capable of. This is how much money I have. Uh, This is the place I live in. This is the family God's given me. These are the talents I have. These are the skills I have. These are the things I'm passionate about. This is the stuff I definitely drives me crazy and don't even want to talk about it. This is all of the stuff that I'm going to hope in. I'm going to hope in a life and a world built around these things that I can wrap my mind around and I can have some predictability around. But the problem is that those things are not things that we can ultimately hope in. They fail us. At some point or another, they all fail us. And so when God's promise comes in and God says, I want you to hope for something bigger, there is a clash between these two things, hope against hope. And so Abraham, as a man who's living his life according to promise, doesn't just have clear direction. He has a hope that is different. He says, he did not weaken by, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Again, sorry if you're about 100. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he had these legitimate reasons to think, how is this going to happen? How is God's promise going to come true? I don't understand logically how it's going to happen. Uh, we often misunderstand faith by thinking that, that faith is believing in things that are the opposite of any of the evidence around. And that's not true. Faith is having a clear enough idea of a thing that when all the other stuff is confusing and not adding up, when we don't have enough data with everything else, we still have clarity on what is going to happen. If Abraham's hope was built on what he could physically do, if, and you got to understand, this guy was pretty successful. He had a lot of wealth. One of the wealthiest people in the world, probably. So a person like that has probably got a lot of hope wrapped up in all the things that are happening prior to God coming into the picture and saying, hey, listen, there's this other thing I want you to hope in now. It's easier for many to to follow the promises of God when there are less and less that they find themselves hoping in that's delivering for them. That's not Abraham, and that's not many of us. But as these hopes clash, we find that we get real hope in the promise that God makes us. He gives us real direction, and he gives us real hope. God's promises offer us a hope that can withstand even the most discouraging circumstances. The point of a promise is to give us clarity and confidence when hope dwindles and fails. 
God's promises don't contradict what's rational. They don't contradict what's possible. They give us uh, the ability to see how much bigger God is than just what we see around us. We have our perception of what's going to happen. We have our limited knowledge of what is happening around us. And God has so much infinitely more. In Abraham's mind, it's this simple. We've tried biologically to have children. We can't have children. Therefore, it is impossible for us to have children. God's response, I agree. You have tried to have children. I agree that you have not had children. I can give you children. And God's promises always exist against the backdrop of uncertain circumstances. We incorrectly sometimes focus on the promises of God during the good times in life. We like talking about them when things are going well because we can believe like this is what it means to have a promise of God, right? Like uh, we graduate high school, we're feeling great about it. Here's a book of God's promises. We have our first kid. Here's a book of God's promises for a parent or something. We get married. This relationship is bulletproof. God's promises for the... I I have so many books of God's promises uh, that people have given me at different times in my life. And they've they've generally been at good times. There have been harder ones that people often make, of course, for people grieving, people who have lost. But I think we like to think about the promises of God when things are going well so that we can be like, see how good life is going? This is what God offers me. This is what God offers us. This is what it looks like to have a promise of God. That's really not biblically when promises usually come into the picture, the things that God assures us of that are bigger than our circumstances. When trials come our way, which Abraham dealt with, he dealt with as he fought against enemies, he dealt with as he uh, basically dealt with infertility and thought there's no way I'm going to have kids of my own. God's promise gives perspective. Those trials give us perspective, and they cause us to reflect on whether or not we're really living in God's promise or something else. You can say you're walking according to this thing out in front of you, that you are a person of faith because you trust it. It is often not until life gets really hard that we go, do I really trust this thing? I'm not sure if I have been. God's promises don't change difficult circumstances. They don't prevent hardship and tragedy. They don't guarantee you a better quality of life. You're like, Ed, you're a really good salesman for God's promises. What they are is the goal. They are the object of our faith. They are the thing that we look towards. If we cannot fix our gaze on what God has promised, we will simply be consumed by all the things that are happening here and now. God's promise gives us the ability to hope in something that is so much more real than all the other junk that we hope in. If if life in the last few years has taught us anything, it is how flimsy and weak all the things that we often hope in are in this world around us, in our own community, in our own society, even in many of our own families. Now, Christians often make the mistake. In fact, many people that I often talk to who seem the most focused on what God says can be uh, accused uh, much of the time of escapism. Basically, we have a hard time finding a middle ground, I think. I think we have a hard time living somewhere in between, like, 
um, I, I don't care at all about the promises of God, and I'm completely wrapped up in the things of this world, versus I'm completely disconnected from the things of this world, and I can't wait for it all to end. Because God's promises are good, and that's all I want to think about. This is something that's often uh, an accusation thrown towards people of faith, right? Like, well, yeah, you don't care about anything going on around you. You don't care about anything going on in the world. You're not invested in this anymore. You're invested in something else, and you just want for that to come. And I think many of us would admit that when things get real hard, it is easy as a Christian to often be like, man, I just want that to come. I don't want to be dealing with this anymore. I don't want to be uh, caught up in all this anymore. I want to be away from all these people or all these things or all these issues or the direction the world is going in right now. That's not what you see in Abraham. Abraham fights in battles. Abraham engages with leaders. Abraham has a family. Abraham uh, divides his territory with his, with his, uh, his nephew. Abraham is living life fully engaged. He is not escaping and withdrawing because of the promise that God gives him. His hope gives him the ability to, to still have something to have confidence in without just being removed and escaping from everything else. You see, because his hope wasn't uh, wasn't driven by the things of the world because his hope wasn't dictated by these things that we invest ourselves in, that we kind of need to invest ourselves in in order to live life on this planet that we're living on. He was like the best person to deal with those things. So here's the way it's supposed to work, okay? We're the people who know that nothing but God is going to really truly save us. And so we can be invested in government. We can be invested in schools. We can be invested in medicine. We can be invested in families and helping people at risk. We can be invested in helping make this world a better place in every possible front that there is, knowing that ultimately these things can be good and helpful and are worth investing in because they are our world that we share together, but these are not the things that will ultimately save us, right? A Christian going into an election is supposed to be different in their mindset than a person who doesn't have the hope that is real, the promise that is real, because they can go in and care while also knowing that this person, whoever this next person is, whether it's who I want or who I don't want or whatever, is not ultimately the Savior, is not ultimately the one that my hope is in. My hope is in something bigger. My hope is in something greater, something that will last far after all of these things. That is how one who lives with this real sense of hope is allowed to be. We are not withdrawn from the world. We are the most valuable people here because we have perspective. We can love people because we don't need those people to fulfill some void inside of us. We can seek to do well in our jobs because we don't need success in order to find us. We can make money and be generous with that money, and we can give it away better than anyone else because we don't need that money to fulfill us and keep us happy. Our hope is not in those things, as Abraham was forced again and again to have to wrestle with. So often we look at the world around us and we feel like we get so caught up and we get so worried and we get so freaked out. 
instead of stopping and asking the question, do I trust God here? Do I trust God here? A Christian is a person who acts in such a way that is different. Uh, That my generosity isn't dependent on the amount of money I make. My generosity isn't dependent on the state of the economy. Why? Because God tells me that he will provide what I need. And that unlike anyone else who can only give up to a certain point because, you know, ultimately their hope does need to be in what they hold back for themselves, we're a people who don't. The way that I pursue relationships, the way that I love other people, the way that I seek to step out in faith is different because of the hope that I have that is real, that is true. The last thing that we see has to do with uh, the humility that is given to us by the promises of God. We read this about Abram. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I think there's something that's easy to overlook here, and it is this. Abraham grew in his faith. If Abraham is a man of such great faith, if Abraham is a man who's justified by his trust uh, in what God has done and not what he himself has done, and he's supposed to be the example that Paul's pointing to, then, uh, then he is a man who also, according to Paul, grew in his faith. Let me tell you a little bit about chapter one of the saga of Abraham, okay? So he comes from a people who uh, primarily worship uh, a moon god named Sin. That's confusing. That's kind of a bad sign, right? God comes to him and he speaks to him. And it's it's a miracle that he even hears God's voice, considering the fact that he's not necessarily listening for it. And God makes this promise to him and tells him, go and I will do these great things for you. So he leads and he heads through Canaan and God actually shows him this is the promised land that he built some altars and he celebrates and things are going well. God's given him this thing. He's shown him this thing. Then it says there's a famine in the land. Things get scary in his circumstances. And so there's a famine. He gets freaked out. He gets worried. He leaves the promised land. He goes to Egypt. Why does he go to Egypt? Because his confidence during this famine is in the greatest leader that he can go find. It is in the, the, the nation, the people, who probably have the best resources for this. So he goes to Egypt, leaving the promised land. Sorry, God, we'll get back to this thing after this famine's over. When the famine's over, when things settle down, then we'll get back to the promise. And I promise you I'll be on track for that thing. I definitely want a kid. He goes to Egypt, lies about his wife. That's not good. He says, listen, Sarah, like, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, let's open with that, right? I want to start with that. You're so beautiful that it's a problem for us, so let's just tell uh, the Pharaoh that, 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 you're my, that you're my sister, and, you know, you know that way, like, he's not, we're not going to get in a big fight about you, and we're not going to have to battle over you or anything like that. So he does, and it turns out that's the right thing to tell him, because he's like, great, let me just take her in my household, okay? I guess Abraham doesn't have a problem with that. Takes her into his household, he rewards Abraham with all kinds of great stuff, his life's great in Egypt, and then all of a sudden, Pharaoh starts 
suffering these horrible things. And I'm guessing Sarah's probably the one that told him. She's like, hey, here's the deal. I think I know why your life's going so badly right now, right? This is kind of like when Jonah's on the boat and the storm comes up and they're like, uh, uh, who's the problem here? And then they figure it out. He's right overboard, right? So he goes to Abraham, the, the Pharaoh, and he says, is this true? You lied to me about this? He's like, yeah, I was freaked out. I was worried. And he's like, man, look at what you did to me. Look at what you did to my life. Thanks a lot. And he gives him a bunch of stuff and he kicks him out of Egypt. Not the life of a man who trusts in the promise of God. This is a man who's doing a pretty poor job of living this great life of faith that we're supposed to be looking at. So he leaves. And the end of this first chapter in his life of following after God isn't a glowing endorsement of him. But then we get to the next phase of his life in God's promise. He, he goes and he, uh, he lives with Lot, his relative, and their territory grows and their herds grow and all their stuff grows. That's stuff. All your money's wrapped up in stuff. So they got lots of stuff. God's blessing them. They divide where they're going to be. One picks one area, one picks another area to be in. He's handling that pretty well. He doesn't like say, no, I got to be in charge of everything. He's kind of generous with Lot. He says, you can go have all this land. I'll have all this land. It's okay. God's, gonna, God's promise will still be good. Then all this crazy stuff happens. There's like, there's like 18,000 kings that decide to go to war against each other, and Lot basically just gets sucked into it, and he gets kidnapped, and all of his stuff gets taken, and Abraham hears about it. And Abraham, Abraham, well, at this point, he's Abram. He goes to get him. He takes a bunch of his guys. He is not a general with a trained army, okay? He is not the guy who should be fighting this fight. But he's like, whatever. God made a promise. I'm trusting him. He's going to take care of me. So Abram takes a bunch of his servants, and, uh, and they go, and they basically just defeat these guys, get back Lot, get back all of his stuff, and they have this incredible success in battle. He rescues Lot against all odds, and then some of these kings go, Man, you're amazing. We want to give you some stuff. We want you to enjoy the spoils of, of, of this. Uh, and, and he says, no. He says, I don't want anything from any of you. I only want what God gives me. That's weird, right? He went from, uh, yeah, thanks, Pharaoh. Ooh, take more and more. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, she's my sister. Enjoy her, right? Take more. Give me more. This is pretty good. To, I don't want anything from any of you. I only want what God himself will give me. And believe me, I've got nothing to worry about because God has given me his promise. In fact, his behavior is so impressive that we learn about this incredible sort of mystical character in the Bible, Melchizedek, who's got this epic name. And he's this priest that basically says, his, his function in the story is just to show up and go, wow, your God's pretty great. And that's it. So Abraham is living in such a way that this great priest shows up and he says, man, you know, there's something about you that's different. And we see glory go to God, not to Abraham, not to his family, definitely not to Lot. He's kind of like probably embarrassed at this point. They had to come get him. What we see with Abraham as a man of faith is that because his life is built on this, these promises that God has given him and not on himself, it's not on what he's going to do then it gives him the ability to have real faith. And what I mean by real faith is that it is a faith that grows into real faith because the truth is, faith is a struggle. 
The ability to trust in and depend on God is not an easy process for us living here in the flesh. We try and we blow it. We try again and we blow it again. And the problem is, if we don't believe in the promise of God, then what happens when we blow it is we get completely defeated and overwhelmed. We go, well, I, here I am. I, be, I become a Christian. I'm following Jesus. I'm living a good life now. Now God's going to be impressed with me. And then we blow it majorly. And then we go, well, I guess I couldn't do it. I guess I couldn't really have the kind of faith I'm supposed to have. A person who's not living on this promise that God gives, all these things that Jesus promises as well, is a person who will get, uh, they have so much riding on what you have to do, on how perfect your faith has to be, that you give up, that your faith never ultimately grows. You see, the promise of God gives Abraham something that is crucial in the life of a Christian, and it is this thing called humility. God's promise says this was never about what you were capable of doing. It was about how much you could trust what I'm capable of doing. And that makes a person humble. And, and a humble person is able to mess up and come back to God in repentance and try again. And try again and try again. Because this is what it means to live a life built on God's promises. Uh, we, we, we love characterizing the heroes of the Bible, these, these paragons of perfect faith, when in reality, if you look at Hebrews 11, which is the greatest list of all the fathers, the giants of the faith, they are all a bunch of screw-ups, man. They are a mess. It is people who have blown it time and again, and yet it says they had faith because, uh, because they, their assurance was in the thing that was unseen. It was in the thing that they were living for. It wasn't even in themselves and how good they themselves were. So to, to trust in the promise of God, to have faith, which means a life built on this promise, going back to it again and again as often as we can, is to be a person who can have faith that grows into maturity. That's how faith grows. Abraham's faith grows. It doesn't just start out perfect. Isn't that the opposite of how, I mean, really, growing faith, isn't that feel like the opposite of how we, we kind of expect it to go? If you, if you are a Christian, uh, you have like this period of time when we call it being like on fire or, you know, like, uh, like whatever you call it, newborn or whatever, uh, and you have those, those weeks or months or even like years where you're just like fiery in your faith. And then you spend much of the rest of your Christian life looking back going, man, what happened? Like, why can't I get back to that, right? And, and, and for many of us, the feeling of faith is one that goes down like this. It's not one in which we grow in greater faith. It's one where we almost feel like we're experiencing the sort of remnants of this great faith that we had. That's because when our faith is wrapped up in what we think we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to become and what we're supposed to do, then you can only do that for so long and you get burned out and you go, man, I don't, I don't really have anything. Never mind. I guess I was wrong about this. When the faith is in what God can do, he will always show up. He will always fulfill his promises that he makes. And we will mess up and we will blow it and we will be afraid. We will get distracted, right, by all the noise and all the mess. Even though God's promise gives us direction, we'll have all these things confusing us like a fog and all kinds of crazy stuff. And we're going to get distracted. We're going to get confused. We're going to lose sight of the promise. And, and we continue to move forward even though we know we will do that because we have humility knowing that this is what it means to grow into mature in faith. Ultimately, Abraham gets to a point where God says to him, 
It's like really the most crazy part of his whole story. He finally has the son, by the way. He is able to have a child um, and uh, his son Isaac, and then God tells him to take him up on a mountaintop and sacrifice him, and he's like, okay, just like that. And then God stays his hand right at the last moment, right? That right there is like, is like a long time into Abraham's journey of faith. So to look at that and say, oh, that's what it looks like from day one is not true. It's not right. That's not at all what Abraham's story says to us. And this is the person that Paul's holding up as an example of faith. The essence of Abraham's faith in this case was that he believes that God's way was possible no matter what. One author I read said, those who at least stumble and fall forward in the direction of God's will find, will find a divine resource and a promise from God. Much of the time, walking according to God's promise in this world in which we live, with the lives in which we have, feels more like stumbling than a really great walk that we feel confident in. And much of the time, growing in faith feels more like stumbling and falling in the direction of God rather than being able to stand up proud with who we are. The good news is our faith is not in who we are and who we become, how perfect we are at doing things. Our faith is in what God has promised us about himself, and we can go back to that again and again. We said last week when I was talking about what it means to be a people who have faith, that is, their justification comes from your faith in Christ, not in the works of the law and the things that you do. The reason we get drawn to the works of the law is because it's like an easy to-do list to focus on, right? Come on, it's January. We all know that, right? We're, we call them habits now, by the way. That's like the new thing is habits. What are your habits? Do you have any new habits? Do you want to change any habits this year? How about some better habits, some healthier habits, some get rid of some old bad habits, right? The reason we like the law to justify us is because it's a lot easier to just pull out a list and be like, I'm just going to work on this, right? What do I do today? I don't know. It's kind of a big, confusing, existential question, so I'll just focus on doing these things better. I'm sure in the end, God will like me more. I'm sure in the end, I'll like myself more. Hopefully, other people will like me more. They're the ones that gave me the list. Uh, oftentimes, the reason that justification by faith is so hard for us is because we're like, what does the step look like? What does it look like in a tangible way? And we talked last week about it being this simple, really this simple. Number one, know that you have moods. Know that basically there are times when you're going to feel different. Gee whiz, how does that factor into the promise of God? Because there are some times when it's going to be so easy to think about the promise of God, when it's going to be so easy to feel like, yes, God's promise, I'm living in it right now and I feel it right now. And then there's going to be all these other times when that's like the last thing that feels true to you. When whatever God says about himself does not feel true to you. Not in the circumstances that you're surrounded by, not in the world in which you're living. So know, first and foremost, that you're going to feel like this, but that doesn't mean that God's promise is this. That is simply how we feel living in the flesh. And we take that into account. The other thing is that we daily put before us the things that we know to be true about God. We do that with the promise of God. As a person who struggled with anxiety many times in my life, the thing that has pulled me out of it is two things. One, the reminder in God's word that he is my defender and that he, he is my defense and he is my fortress. There's no amount of freaking out and planning and stressing and anything else that's going to do anything in my life compared to the fortress that God is for me and the defense that he is for me, which is hard because there's nothing harder for an anxious person than to let down their defenses. 
you end up doing it because you're like, my defenses are lame, and they don't actually stop any of these arrows or anything from happening. But I still like stressing out because it makes me feel in control. The other thing that helped me let go was simply the assurance of Jesus to not fear because God will care for me. Those two promises of God put before me daily are the only thing that ultimately pulls me from something like that. So we know that we have moods and we do these things. And what that produces in us is the ability to be a people who Jesus can give a great commission to and say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that it's crazy that we would actually do that. Because a people who believe in the promises of God can do the things that God then calls them to do. You can live your life for other people to know Jesus. Man, what a mess the world is that we live in right now. I don't even know how I would begin living a better life for myself at this point, honestly. Whatever I try to do, it's going to like be a mess in six months anyway. Who knows what's going to happen? Probably an icicle is going to fall on my head. That's like next month, right? That's next month and the month after. That's when the sky starts falling. I'm trying to remember this thing on my calendar for when I go outside. That's, that's impossible. That's a mess. That's unpredictable. That's no way to live. God instead says, live according to my promises, and when you do that, you will be so free that you can actually go live for this much bigger thing that I'm calling you to do. Just like he called Abraham to go out, a people who live according to a promise don't spend all of our time trying to keep everything in order, trying to, trying to keep everything going well, spinning all the plates and keeping them going. We're a people who can actually be so relieved by the promise of God that's carrying us forward with the, with the, with the, the real hope and the real faith and the real direction in our lives that we actually can let a lot of that go and say, do you know what I'm going to care about right now? I'm going to care about other people. How nuts is that? I'm going to care about other people. And even more specifically, I'm going to care about those people knowing about the hope they have in Jesus. The only way to do that is to be an optimist, is to be someone who believes that good things can happen. And there's not a lot of optimists out there anymore. Why? Because pessimists are people who spend their lives realizing just how bad their attempts to do things are and just how bad everyone else's attempts to do things are. It's easy to live life longer and longer going, I don't believe in that anymore. I don't believe in that anymore. That person let me down. That thing let me down. People can't change. People can't grow. Things can't be different. And that pessimism is what happens when we do not live our lives on the promise of God. To live on the promise of God is to ultimately be someone who's optimistic. To ultimately be someone who can say that because of the direction that God gives me in my life, that I can go and seek to reach other people for the sake of the gospel. I can do that thing because of the promise that God has given me. Let's pray. Father, I confess that um, I, um, looking back even just at the last few years of my own life, I, um, I am ashamed of all of the things that I have chosen to find my hope and confidence in, in this incredibly difficult season of life that are not you, God. I am ashamed of how rarely I have gone to your promises instead of opening up an internet browser and just trying to figure everything out that way. Father, you do not call us to be a people who pull ourselves away from the world, who get detached from it and just can't, can't wait for the end to come. 
God, you call us to be a people who go into this world and transform it through the power of your Holy Spirit. And the reason that we can do that is because of all of the assurances that you've given us about yourself. God, would you help us as a church to be a people who live our lives built on the promises that you give us? What it means to be a people of faith is to be really good at going back to those promises as often as we possibly can reshaping our heart and our mind and our lives around those promises and letting everything else be drowned out. God, help us do that even now as we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.